truth. So I spread my news because no one else is going to do it for me. I let you know that I survived nine bullets, not to sell records, but because it's the truth. But it's been turned into a gimmick. Every time I sit down for an interview, I'm asked, well, 50, how did it feel to get shot nine times? Honestly, it didn't feel good. Now it's just a memory, but when it happened, it hurt. Bad. If you're given the choice, check the box that says no. It may not seem that bad because it's been packaged into a phrase that you come across in every story about me. The bullet-riddled rapper who was shot nine times. But it doesn't hold the weight, the pain, or the hope of my experience. It just can't. I haven't shown my scars on television to sell records. I haven't let journalists fill the hole in my gum because it sells records. I've shared my reality because these are real situations that happen where I come from. And there are thousands of people who will never get the opportunity to go on TV and tell you what happens in the places where gunshots settle arguments. When you look at how my body healed itself, I want you to see the bodies of those who never healed. The ones who didn't make it to the emergency room on time. The ones who never bounced back. That's what I'm the poster child for. And I'd like to be nothing else. I may die tomorrow, but that only makes me work harder today. In many ways, I've already won. I've already exceeded the expectations that people had of me. I overcame the obstacles that were in front of me. And for a moment, I got to feel what it feels like for the world to focus on me. For being a winner. No one can take that away from me. Just like they can't take away what came before. Now there are people who would actually like to be me. But if they had to go through the situations I was in before I became a rap star, I don't think they still want to be me. People already have a perception of me. When I meet them, they think this guy's crazy. But you have to look at it and realize this is how they think in the hood. This is my mindset and these are the things that go on. This is why I say the rhymes that I say. This is what happened when I was trying to get rich before I died in Southside, Queens. I can remember when there was no such thing as crack. Sure, there was ways to get high. Everybody used the old standby. Pot, grass, weed, herb, chiba, chronic, trees, endo, doja. Whatever they called it then, whatever they call it now, and whatever they'll call it in the future, it was marijuana. It was an escape. A portable vacation. There was heroin, which came from morphine, which came from opium. Opium was around before Jesus. It was big in Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. They used it as medicine. Morphine hasn't been around as long. It was made as a painkiller at the beginning of the 19th century by a German physician who named it after Morpheus, the Greek god of dreams. In Vietnam War movies, when a soldier gets all shot up, He'll be in some serious pain, breathing all heavy, telling the guy holding his hand to make sure that his mom or girlfriend gets the little heart he had been making out of wood. The guy holding the soldier's hand will scream, Doc, we need more morphine. Then the medic runs over and shoots the guy with a needle dose of the stuff. That's it. No more pain. He goes all peaceful, right into the arms of Morpheus. I guess heroin really cranked up the dream guy factor. Because all I've ever seen it do is make people nod off like walking zombies. Cocaine's been around for a long time, too. But it hasn't always been treated the way it's treated today. In 1863, Italians used cocaine to make a wine that even the Pope loved so much that he raved about its ability to spark the divinity of the soul. Twenty years later, Sigmund Freud, 
the father of modern psychology, called coke magical and couldn't get enough of this stuff. He snorted it, injected it, painted it on his skin. At the time, cocaine was a wonder drug, a stimulant and a painkiller that cured everything from impotency to masturbation and was used as a surgical anesthetic. Some guys started making a wine in Atlanta, but then prohibition came around, so he took out the alcohol and renamed it Coca-Cola. At the start of the 20th century, cocaine was deemed illegal, but it was still available if you knew the right people. All of these things and more were in place when my grandparents Curtis and Beulah Jackson moved to South Jamaica, Queens from Erickson, South Carolina. But there was no such thing as crack. That came later. Back then, Queens was a haven for relatively successful blacks. In the earliest part of the 20th century, there was Lewis Latimer, the inventor who expanded on the light bulb created by his former mentor, Thomas Edison, by creating the carbon filament. Later, in the 1950s, Queens was home to jazz legends like John Burks, Dizzy Gillespie, Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, William Count Basie, and baseball giant Jackie Robinson. Because it's farther into the mainland, Queens was settled and laid out in an easier, more suburban fashion in Brooklyn and Manhattan, which were basically laid out as grids. Queens' village-like landscape, low bridges, and lack of public transportation services made it the great escape for those who wanted easy access to the big city without the dangers of full-time residents in the core of the rotten apple. My grandparents had nine children, Curtis Jr., Geraldine, Cynthia, Jennifer, Harold, Johnny, Karen, and Sabrina, my mom. By the time my mom was born, in 1960, Queens was no longer the quick retreat from urban squalor. In 1964, the borough became the focus of the country because of what happened to Catherine Kitty Genovese. She was stabbed 17 times with a hunting knife over the course of a half hour as 38 people watched from their homes. After this, the city created the 911 emergency response system and the number of white people who were moving to Long Island's Nassau and Suffolk counties increased because of all the blacks coming in. That's the Queens I know. To hear my mom tell it, when she was 15 years old, on July 6, 1975 to be exact, the impossible happened. She gave birth to me via immaculate conception, just like Mary did with Jesus. She named me Curtis James Jackson III in honor of her father, but called me Boo Boo. The one and only true Curtis Jackson was and still remains my grandfather. Even Curtis Jr., my uncle, had to take to being called Star. Whenever I asked my mom about my dad, she would say, you don't have a father. I'm your mama and your daddy. Even though I didn't know what that meant, I knew what it meant. If you were a kid growing up in my neighborhood, it was weird for you to have both parents around. You either got one parent or you got grandparents. I had one parent and two grandparents. From what I could tell, I was ahead of the game. And when it came time to bring it, whether it was love, money, or authority, my mom would bring it. That's the only thing that mattered to me. I remember seeing my mom hanging out with women more than she hung out with men. She had this one friend named Tammy who would always be around. So one time I asked my grandmother, why does mom always come around with Tammy? My grandmother said, that's something you should ask your mother about. And I dropped the subject. I was young, but I wasn't stupid. My mom was, in a word, hard. She was real aggressive. 
As a disciplinarian, she was stern. As a motivator, she was even harsher. Once when I was about five years old, I came running into my grandmother's house crying because I had been fighting with some kids up the block. We had been shooting marbles when this kid missed a really easy shot and I laughed at him. He must have been having a bad day because he got real upset and wanted to fight. Because he was much bigger than me, all the other kids got on his side to beat me up. I was like, you can't be serious. This kid was already bigger than the legal size for five-year-olds. It's not like he needed the help. So I did the only thing I could. I took my ass whooping and I went home to cry. My mom was pissed. What the hell are you crying about? There was this boy, I told her. He's as big as a whole block, maybe two. He beat me up and he wasn't finished with me when I ran, so if it's all the same to you, I'll be spending the rest of my fifth year in the house. My mom asked me where he was. I said, he's still outside, blocking out the sun most likely. You can't fight him, ma. She looked at me like I had left my common sense on the street. She said, go back out there and fight him. If you get your ass beat again, you're going to take it without crying. I would have sworn that something was wrong with my ears. Or maybe hers. I said, Ma, this kid is big. Like, big, big. I don't care if he's bigger than you, she said. You pick something up and hit him with it if you have to, but you're not going to come back in here crying. The worst the kid could do was kill me, but I was more scared than my mom at that moment. I went back out there, picked up a rock that I could barely hold in my hand, and knocked the fuck out of that kid with it. It was the first time I ever hit someone hard enough to make him go down. He was curled up on the floor bleeding and saying that he was going to tell his mother on me. I didn't care. His mom could only go and talk to my mom, and I had a strong feeling that any confrontation...